0: Last week I learned that uh, we failed to get these three by five cards to all of you, and uh, I wanted to make sure that all of you had the opportunity to memorize the verses before we said them together. So have you gotten them this morning coming in? Did you get them? Would you wave them at me so I can know? If, oh yes, there they are. Kind of helps the air conditioning too, doesn't it? All right, thank you. Now Romans 5, verses 3 and 4 will be the verses for next week. For those of you that memorized today, you've got a whole week to review. We will say together Romans five verses three and four next week as part of our worship together. Now, would you open your Bible, please, to the Book of Romans and the third chapter? We are today concluding the third, the first section of the book of Romans as we have outlined it. Chapters one through three, generally speaking, deal with the first subject, and that is the subject of sin, the righteousness which is needed by man to get to heaven. And uh, we need that righteousness because of our sin in the sight of God. This section exposes the desperate condition of mankind apart from God, whether whether man be a degenerate, immoral, pagan idolater, or whether he be a cultured, civilized, refined moralist, or if he be a sincere, religious zealot, all men have the same need, and that is the need for salvation. All men need the Savior. Whether Jew or Gentile, all men need the Savior. For all have sinned and stand before God on equal footing, having the same essential need, to be forgiven of sins and to receive God's righteousness, by which he may then be saved and enter heaven. Each person Jew or Gentile will be judged according to the light that he has had in this world. The Jew will be judged according to the law, because he's had the law. The Gentile, it says, will be judged apart from the law, but judged he will be. All men will stand before God and give account for the works of their lives. We'll further learn that Jewish rituals did not give the Jews standing with God that is, the rituals in themselves, God was looking for something inward. He was looking for faith to give those outward rituals and ceremonies meaning. For example, in chapter 2, verse 28, he says, A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly. Nor a circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Now obviously, for Paul to make statements like that, there were going to be questions that were to be created in the minds, especially the Jews. And that's where he picks it up in chapter 3, verse 1, and we'll read verses 1 through 20. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew? For what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right in your words and prevail in your judging. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust and bring his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness, And so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, Let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Women and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. As the writer of this epistle, Paul, the apostle of God, concludes his remarks charging the guilt of all mankind before a holy God. He places himself in five roles, it would seem, and approaches this theme of man's sinfulness from the perspective of each of those roles. First he sees himself, it would seem, as a debater. He argues with his objectors. Those who would object with what he has been saying would be primarily the Jews. The Apostle seems to visualize a Jewish opponent and enters into a debate with him regarding what he has said about Jewishness and circumcision. Perhaps he is recounting here some Of his own thinking prior to his conversion. There seem to be four questions that this debate circles around. First, if physical circumcision gives no standing with God, as Paul has said earlier, if Jewishness is inward and spiritual and not outward, What advantage, then, is there in being a descendant of Jacob? What is the advantage of being a Jew? Is there any? Well, his immediate answer to that question is, yes, there are many advantages to being Jewish. He lists only one, however. He might have talked about the mighty deliverance out of Egypt, or the way that God had provided for his people. Those were advantages which the Jews had had. He might have talked about how God had appointed such a great king as David. There are many advantages he might have pointed out, but the apostle picks out the chief advantage which the Jews had, and that was they were entrusted with the very words of God. In other words, the Old Testament scriptures. You see, God revealed himself in only one book, There were many religious writings even in that day. But the true God had revealed himself in none of them except one book. And that was the scripture of the Old Testament Jew. The words of God. The Logia of God as it says here. What a privilege in the Jew had. To have the revelation of God. And whenever there is privilege there is responsibility. The Jew had both. He seems to include here as well the idea that those Old Testament scriptures included many promises for the Jewish people, promises which were unfulfilled to that day and which, by the way, are still unfulfilled today. There are some people who spiritualize those promises and say, oh, well, those are just now spiritual truths that are applied to the church. We reject that. We believe that when God made a promise to Israel, he made it to Israel. And that he will fulfill his promise to that old covenant people. The promises given to Israel in the Old Testament, in terms of real estate, victories, etc., may have some kind of a spiritual application to the church. That is, we may learn from them the principles given to us in the New Testament. But those promises are given to Israel and will be fulfilled to that people. So it seems that Paul is saying here, look, what advantages have the Jews had? They've had the Old Testament Scriptures. When no one else in the world knew who the true God was, the Jews did. God chose to reveal himself to them. Not only so, God has in that book, the Bible, given many promises. To the physical descendants of jacob which are yet to be fulfilled so there is a great advantage to being jewish the second question is well if some though failed to fulfill the trust that was given to them and of course that's true that great privilege which the jews had carried with it responsibility and the jews failed in that responsibility And so the second question seems to be, in verses 3 and 4, if some failed, then, through unbelief, to fulfill that trust given to them, will that nullify God's faithfulness in carrying out his word? Is God then finished with Israel? Well, we've already suggested that's not true. In fact, the apostle says, not at all. That could never be so. God's promises, you see, do not rest upon men's faithfulness but upon God's faithfulness. I'm glad for that, aren't you? The promises that God gives to us today rest upon his trustworthiness, not upon ours. Likewise, even though the nation of Israel historically failed God and was judged, God is not finished with that people. He will still fulfill his promises to them. Their unfaithfulness has not nullified the promises of God. He goes on to suggest here that, in fact, when man fails, as Israel did, all it really does is to magnify God's faithfulness, because the contrast between man's faithlessness and God's faithfulness is only that much greater and more clear. He quotes from David in Psalm 51, though David's sin which he confesses in Psalm 51, that sin of adultery and of lying about it and of murder to try to cover it up. That sin could never in itself be said to be good. Nonetheless, God used it to glorify his truth. You see, as it says here, it proved God's words. So even man's faithfulness, faithlessness, and man's failure works to the glory of God. That brings up question number three in verses five and six. If man's failure, or specifically Israel's failure in the context, commends God's righteousness, then how can God righteously condemn man? You see his point? If man's failure only causes God to be glorified more because of his excellencies, then how can God judge man? That's unfair. The apostle answers by saying, in essence, such a thought is fallacious. If God can't judge Israel because of of her failure, how can he judge the world in general? If he didn't judge... Sinners and those who failed then one would have to conclude that even the most wicked has brought glory to God and could never be judged for example a Hitler by using this perverted argument that man's failure glorifies God therefore God can't judge man one would have to say that Hitler brought much glory to God and therefore could not be judged because of his great sins You see how perverted that kind of an argument is? And yet, in fact, God does use man's sin to prove his own righteousness and his glory. That does not, however, excuse man for his sin and his failure. And finally, in verses 7 and 8, as Paul continues his debate, he takes the argument to the point of absurdity. He said, if this third question were true, that God could not judge man, and that man's evil only glorified God, then why shouldn't we do what we're reported of saying and teaching, do evil that good may result? He says those who say that kind of thing have condemnation coming, and it's deserved. Basically what he's saying there, the end would justify the means in that case. Do evil so that God may be glorified. The end would justify the means. That is the argument of this day, isn't it? The means don't count, the end is what counts. Well, there's uh, falsehood in that. The Apostle says those who have that kind of an idea are condemned, and their condemnation is deserved. He rebuffs that idea. And so, you see, he enters into a debate here with an opponent that he visualizes to try to answer some of the Jewish attacks Upon his teaching and then in verses 9 through 12 he sees himself in the role of a judge and as a judge he examines the evidence that is before him essentially he says all mankind jews and gentiles alike are under sin that's the charge what is the evidence To undergird that charge. Well, he gives it to us in these verses. And he quotes from the Old Testament. This is God's valuation of mankind. Verse 10. There is no one righteous, not even one. The first piece of evidence from God's word about man is that none is righteous. That is, none has inherent righteousness. He does not possess more virtue in himself. Ah, someone says. What about Adam? Adam was righteous. No. Adam was sinless and innocent. But he did not have righteousness until God justified him through his faith. God saved him and gave him righteousness through the shedding of the blood of that innocent animal. But until he sinned, Adam was only innocent. There is none righteous, no, not one, except those that God justifies or declares to be righteous through their faith in Christ. The second piece of evidence is verse 11. There is no one who understands. In other words, among all of men, there is no mind that is not darkened when it comes to spiritual things. the man writes many books on religion, though obviously he is a religious creature and has that need of worshiping something, all of his writing, all of his philosophizing is mere speculation. It is blind groping. There's no one who understands within himself God. God has to reveal himself, in other words. And then he says, no one seeks God. Ah, oh, you say, but man is a religious creature. Doesn't that mean that he seeks God? No. It means that he has an emptiness inside. He has a religious need, but he does not seek God. He seeks to fill that need, but he does not respond to the light of God that's available to him. Not even the pagan. What does the pagan do? He makes an idol. He doesn't turn to the true God. He creates an idol with his own hands and bows down and worships it. There is none that seeks God. God is not exactly concealing himself in the world either. Even Adam did not seek God after he sinned. Have you ever thought about that? Instead of immediately coming to God and confessing his disobedience, what did Adam do when he hid himself? Men have been doing that ever since. None seeks God. Fourthly, he says, all have turned away. The idea is here that all have detoured from the right road. All have gone out of the way. This is, of course, a reference to Isaiah 53, where the prophet said, all we like sheep have, what? Gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And finally, he says, all have become worthless, excuse me, not finally, fifthly, all have become worthless in verse 12. Does that mean that man has no worth in the sight of God? No, that's not the thought here. Man does have great worth to God, and that's why he gave his son for man. But the word worthless here means rotten. All have become overripe. It's the word for fruit that is spoiled. <clears throat> something that has gone bad irrevocably, something that has become useless, and that's what he says about man. And now, finally, he says in verse 12, there is no one who does good, not even one. He began by talking about character, inherent righteousness, no one has that. He concludes this section by talking about acts, the actions of the life, and he says there is no one Who does good. And so, as a judge now, the apostle views men. He examines the evidence from God's word, and his conclusion is that the charge is correct. Jew and Gentiles alike are all under sin. And, folks, when he says that we're under sin, what that means is that we are indentured to sin, we are obligated to sin. We're in bondage to sin. We are by our natural birth. And we prove that by the way that we live. Man is a sinner. And the examination of the evidence from God's word proves that to be so. There's a third role now the apostle sees himself in, and that is as a physician. He diagnoses his patient his patient is essentially the human family and he says about them their throats are open graves when you go to the doctor for a physical exam what's the first thing that he checks normally it's your throat isn't it he says open your mouth and then he sticks that piece of lumber in there and begins to hold your tongue down and he looks at your throat because there is so much about our health that can be revealed in the way that our throat looks. And that's where the Apostle begins. He says, their throats are open graves. Have you ever been around an open grave? I never have. I never want to be. I have been around bodies of animals that were in the process of decaying, and have smelled that stench. But those who have smelled human flesh decaying say that there is no comparison. I remember reading about one preacher who was called in the middle of the night to accompany the police to the scene of a murder. The body of a little girl had been found. She had been murdered several days before that he said that he never got over the smell of that little girl's body as it was decaying. On one occasion, I do recall going to a funeral home where a friend of mine was working and he took me down to the crematorium. That's one of the most joyous evenings, it was a great uh, experience <clears throat> to tour a funeral home. They he took me down to the crematorium and there, was a body that they were going to cremate the next day. And that's the closest I've ever come to what he's talking about here because that body had not been embalmed. It is a very putrid idea, isn't it? That's what the Apostle's trying to communicate to us. As he, the physician, examines us and looks at our throat, it reminds him of death of decay, of moral stench, of putridness in the nostrils of God. An ugly picture, but that's man. Mel Trotter, who founded a great mission in the city of Grand Rapids, Michigan, now with the Lord a number of years, said, if we could see ourselves as God sees us, we could not even stand ourselves. He continues the physical examination of the sinner here, and he goes to the tongue. The doctor tells a lot by looking at the tongue too, doesn't he? The color of it, and so on. And he says about the tongue of the sinner that it practices deceit. The verb here indicates that it was a habit of life, lying, deceiving, covering up, being less than honest. As he continues in the area of the mouth, he says the poison of vipers is on their lips. Normally the fangs of a snake, a poisonous snake, are folded against the upper jaw. When the mouth opens, those fangs drop down. And when the snake bites... Pressure is exerted so that a sock of poison at the base of the fangs releases that venom and it flows through the hollow fang into the victim. What the Apostle is picturing here is that human beings are like poisonous snakes. They have fangs dripping with venom. Have you ever seen a snake milked of its venom they do that at some zoos and they do it sometimes for medical purposes i remember going to a zoo one time and seeing a rattlesnake behind glass i can assure you behind glass and the snake apparently was tired of the visitors and as i looked in it yawned and as it yawned it opened its mouth and those fangs dropped down and two little drops of golden venom, right there in the end of its fangs. I backed away from the glass in a hurry. He says here that we are like that, that the poison of vipers is in our mouths. Think of the pain caused by the human mouth, the organ of speech that we have. Think of the scars upon lives. Because of the tongue and the lips. There was a great demonstration yesterday in New York regarding nuclear bombs. There have been vastly more people scarred by the human tongue than by nuclear bombs. Scarred in more treacherous, life-harming ways. What we really need in this country is a great march to protest the use of the human tongue. He goes on to describe man as having a mouth that is filled with cursing and bitterness. I don't have to prove that to you. All you have to do is stand out in the street corner sometime. I think it was Vernon McGee who said there was a man who argued with him about this so McGee said well let's go out in the street corner the first guy that comes along you hit him in the mouth and wait and see what he says and you'll find out what his mouth is filled with but well, I'm not sure that's the best way to find out all you have to do is just stand there and listen what do people talk like where you work in the school where you go the mouths are filled with cursing with blasphemy with bitterness and anger and jealousy And then he concludes the physical exam by saying in verse 15 here, their feet are swift to shed blood. In other words, mankind is prone to murder. Murder is a crime that is increasing in this country in an alarming way. Man's feet are swift to shed blood. That has been true ever since the sons of Adam and Eve. If you're angry, if you want ultimate revenge, sometimes if you want 15 cents and change, you murder somebody to get it. What is then the diagnosis of the physician? Well, we can say this the disease is terminal. The disease that he sees here, which infects man, is the disease of sin and it leads to eternal separation from God, to spiritual death. The apostle then seems to take upon himself the role of an historian. And as an historian, he reviews the record of mankind. He says ruin and misery mark their ways. If you were to sum up human history, those two words would probably summarize it better than any others distress and desolation, ruin and misery. How contrasting this is to the lie of evolution, which says man is getting better and better. But the record is on the upswing. In fact, the Bible says the record is progressing downhill. As he looks over the record, he further says, the way of peace they do not know. Do we need to talk about that today as we think of the Falklands, as we think of the Middle East, as we think of Afghanistan? Do we need to think about Cambodia or Kampuchea? Do we need to think about the terrorism in the world? The way of peace they have not known and there's a reason for that. In fact, did you know that James, in chapter 4, verse 1 of his book, gives us the secret to why there's war in the world? If anybody asks you, why is there so much war, turn to that passage, it'll tell you. James 4, 1. It's because of the lusts within the heart of man. War is not caused by poverty or economic injustice. It's really not caused by political differences. War is caused by selfishness. Whether war be within the home, husband and wife, or parents and children, or if it be on the international scale, war is here because of selfishness. <clears throat> and he concludes, as a historian, by saying regarding the record of mankind, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This, of course, could be said to be the root of all of the former. Man lives as though God did not exist. He defies God and deifies himself. There is no reverence, there is no respect for God in the eyes of man. That's the conclusion, then, of the historian. The record shows that man is going downhill and away from God. That he's miserable and without peace. He has no reverence For God. Finally, the apostle in verses 19 and 20 sees himself as a prosecutor. He saw himself as a debater, he saw himself as a judge, he saw himself as a physician, as an historian, and now finally as a prosecutor. And as the prosecutor, He concludes his case and he seems to return here to his primary focus in this chapter that is to the Jews he talks to those who are under the law and yet he certainly does not leave out the Gentiles because they're in view here as well he talks about the whole world a prosecutor is interested in the law that's his job he is the one who is supposed to see that those who disobey the law are convicted in court and punished for their crime. That's why they call him a prosecutor. And so the apostle looks at the law of God, God's moral standards, and this is what he says. Whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. What does the law say? Well, it says, first of all, that every tongue is silenced before God. In other words, there is not one tongue of an individual who can stand before God and give some excuse for his sin. Secondly, it says that the whole world is held accountable to God, not just the Jews who are under the law in a specific sense, but the whole world, Jew and Gentile alike, held accountable to God for the light that he has known. And then what does the law do? Well, certainly it doesn't save. He says in verse 20, No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. I wish this morning that the followers of Herbert W. Armstrong would read this, or the followers of Seventh-day Adventism, or the Jehovah's Witnesses, or the various groups that in some way include the law as a part of salvation. For it says here that no one will be justified or declared righteous in the sight of God by observing the law, even if he could. No one is justified by the law. The law was not given to save men. I think it was Vernon McGee, again, who said that trying to be saved by the works of the law and doing good is like being in an airplane that's going down and grabbing instead of a parachute a sack of cement you see the law will do nothing but take you to condemnation that's its purpose that's what he says through the law we become conscious of sin whether it be in this dispensation or in some other God has never saved anyone by the law he saves only by grace he has never saved anyone by works he saves only by faith The law was given so that in trespassing it, man would see his sinfulness and his guilt before God and would cry out for mercy. And so what is the conclusion of the prosecutor? Essentially it is this. The defendant, you and me, the defendant is guilty according to God's law and he's worthy of God's wrath. These are difficult verses. They fly in the face of religion in our day. They run counter to the concept that in every day, and every way, I'm getting better and better, which is the basic philosophy of liberal theology. It runs counter to the direction of humanism, which says that man is essentially good. God says that man is sinful, hopelessly lost, and in need of a Savior. Now we who have trusted Jesus Christ and who are Christians can understand these verses. I hope that we have no sense of self-righteousness about us. For as we look at at these verses, but for the grace of God, we would all still be living like this. God in His grace has saved us from sin. And he is cleansing us. He is sanctifying us, preparing us for heaven. He is making us new people so we don't live sin-centered lives like the rest of mankind. We have no reason for self-righteousness. We may glory only in the righteousness of God and rejoice in the fact that we've been saved by God's grace. And for anyone here who is today still outside of Christ, and therefore what the Bible calls a sinner. <clears throat> As you look at these verses, I trust that you do not read them casually. They describe every sinner to some degree, and it shows here God's just condemnation upon all sinners. What these verses do, is should show us how badly each of us needs the Savior. Griffith Thomas, a man who has been with God now in heaven for a number of decades, has written a very fine commentary on Romans. I'd like to conclude this message by reading a few of his sentences. Please exercise the discipline of listening as I read them. A reference to the context of these passages will show that the apostle does not mean to charge every individual Jew and Gentile with these sins any more than he does in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, all the Gentiles, or in chapter 2, all the Jews. The reference is, of course, to classes and tendencies of sin, whether among Jews or Gentiles. The Jewish boast of superiority having been already removed. The way was made open for individuals to apply the truth to their own consciences. From time to time, we meet with people full of moral excellences, like the rich young ruler, and we are tempted to think that such words as are here used by the apostle would be utter mockery, but we must never forget that no charm of attitude towards men can ever take the place of thorough righteousness towards God. It is only too possible for man's behavior to be admirable everywhere except at home, where his coldness and indifference are a grief and a shame. In the same way, our best behavior towards man cannot set aside our attitude of self-righteousness and indifference towards God. When we look within our own hearts, we see the possibilities of evil. Just as when we read the story of the rich young ruler, we come at last to the point where that good person was not good, his unwillingness to surrender to Christ, thereby showing an unregenerated heart in spite of all of his excellences. Then Mr. Thomas, Dr. Thomas, comes to the heart of his paragraph in this final sentence. We are condemned in the sight of God for what we are, rather than for what we do. What are we? We are sinners. And what we do is sin. And what we need above everything else is forgiveness. And the gift of God's righteousness that will put us in a right relationship with himself. That's what Romans is all about. Having talked about sin thoroughly in these first three chapters, the apostle will now move on to talk about how God provided righteousness for us through Jesus Christ. I hope that you'll be here to study that. Do you need not wait until then to receive that righteousness and to trust the Savior? If today, where you sit, you feel convicted of sin and you sense within the need for this righteousness of God that we've talked about, you can have that righteousness simply by opening your heart and trusting the Savior, by inviting him into your life. Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Will you let him into your life today? Do you hear him knocking? Will you open the door? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we view the record of man's lost condition, the sinfulness, of man in your sight. All of us are humbled, and we confess that what you have written here is true, it is accurate. All of us fit into these verses. By your grace, however, many of us have already trusted Christ, and we've experienced your cleansing and your forgiveness. You're making us new creatures in Christ. Thank you for that. But I pray for that friend who's here today outside of Christ, still in sin, still under condemnation. May there be faith today that will save that one. May he today open the door wide and receive Christ into his life. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake as well as for the sake of the sinner. Amen.